0: Go to Sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's SYLVAN29.com.
1: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, the editor at large of Recode. You may know me as someone who would be a reporterpreneur, but I hate that term. Sorry, Jessica Lesson. But in my spare time I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Kathleen Kelly Janis, a lecturer at Stanford University's Program on Social Entrepreneurship. She's also the author of the book, Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. Oh, it's so nice to be talking about social things. <laughs> Kathleen, welcome to Recode, Decode.
2: Thanks for having me, It's been Cara. an
1: ugly period of time in startup land, I think. Uh, but here we're going to talk about what you're doing. Give me a little bit of your background. Now, you I want to know how you got to writing about this social entrepreneurship, because Stanford has a very big program in that. And there's lots of there's a lot of really interesting things going on there.
2: Huge program. So I was raised in a small town. I was mm-hmm. raised in Napa. My grandparents moved there mm-hmm. when it was prune country, right. long before right. it was wine country. All right. Um I was uh, raised in a family where uh, we were Irish Catholic and it was our duty to give back to the community. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you would find my sisters and me tagging along with my parents giving back at soup kitchens. And my parents sat on dozens of nonprofit boards Mm -hmm. over the years. And so the the conversations at our dinner table didn't just revolve around the people in our community that didn't have enough to eat, but the nonprofits themselves and how they really struggled to survive Mm -hmm. and thrive. So I've always had this real passion for giving back, particularly to nonprofits. And so when I was a young lawyer in San Francisco, so I looked for ways to get involved, didn't find them, and ended up co-founding my own nonprofit, Spark, which mm-hmm. engages young professionals in giving back to gender equality issues. Mm-hmm. And Spark was amazing. We had a ton of momentum. We had a ton of buzz. And and just when we hit our stride, we hit this wall. We couldn't get the capital that we needed mm-hmm. to grow the organization. And so, many years later, when I began teaching social entrepreneurship at Stanford, I became really curious. Well, who are the organizations that are scaling this wall and what were they doing that we weren't doing at Spark?
1: So talk about the idea of what a social entrepreneur is. So because that's – explain what Stanford has. Stanford has a lot of programs. I know Lauren Dreesen's involved. There's a whole bunch of people involved in it. Mm -hmm. Explain that for people.
2: So social entrepreneurship is a new form of creating social change. Mm -hmm. It used to be about checkbook charity, about, um, let's say, Bill Drayton, the the godfather of social entrepreneurship, says it's no longer about – uh, just giving a man a fish or even mm-hmm. teaching a man a fish. We need to revolutionize the fishing industry. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what social entrepreneurs do. They're thinking mm-hmm. about how you can solve the underlying problems of, say, homelessness. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to just give a man a bed mm-hmm. that you can prevent homelessness from happening in the first place.
1: Mm-hmm. And at Stanford, they do. there's a, a degree
2: in it, correct? There are dozens of degrees, social yeah. entrepreneurship classes right. Right. at Stanford. And that's really exciting because I'm seeing in my students that it's not just you know, a certain type of student who's going to go in the nonprofit sector. It's computer science majors. It's engineering majors. There is a passion and an interest of young people to get involved in social causes like never before.
1: Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about that concept, I don't want to get to your book in a second about some tips, but one of the things that I think a lot of people feel are lacking are that interest in social issues. And it's sort of all the coming home to roost right now in these hearings that have been going on and about the responsibility of companies like Facebook and Google and others. Why is that shifting? Because it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of that before in startups, that they did not think of anything but growth, 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 social issues were very low on the totem pole, if there at all, um, or they were relegated to a, a status that never got fixed.
2: I think young people are taking it. We're Mm -hmm. seeing an incredible generational shift where now 55 percent of millennials Mm -hmm. say that a company's social cause work uh, was a really important factor in deciding whether to go for work for a company. Mm -hmm. And so companies have no choice but to get involved in social cause work if they want to hire and retain great talent.
1: Mm -hmm. And how does that work here, you know, in Silicon Valley? I want to get your book in a second, but like when you're trying to get companies to get that – You don't want it forced upon them, presumably.
2: No, I I think it has to come from companies themselves. It has to come from um, the passion and interest of the founders, of the employees. And every company is going to have a social cause program that's going to look a different way. But what I will say is that the sooner that you can integrate social cause work into the fabric of a company's culture, Mm -hmm. um, the more effective it's going to be and ultimately the more fulfilling it's going to be for the employees as well. So
1: let's talk about the ones that have worked because there, every company, there's been Google Out of Work. there have been all kinds of things in the tech sector. And we're going to focus just on the tech sector. But talk a little bit about what's worked and what hasn't worked.
2: So I'll tell you an interesting story. So I... went on this book tour. My book came out in January and I happened to be speaking at Google and Facebook the Mm -hmm. same week. And um, it happened to be that I was speaking at Facebook the day that the Cambridge Analytica Mm -hmm. news broke. Uh And so I, you know, I saw it on CNN that morning and I go in and the executive who was showing around said, I'm so sorry, the cafeteria is in disarray. You know, we have this, uh, we had this all hands-on meeting for this external thing that's going on. Oh, really? That external thing that I saw on CNN yeah, this morning. Oh, you ruined democracy. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was so interesting, you know, speaking at Facebook and uh, hearing the passion of those employees who were looking for ways to get involved in social causes. And Mark Zuckerberg made a really interesting decision early on in Facebook that his philanthropy would be separate. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the philanthropy arm of Facebook is the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is doing incredible work. I have mm-hmm. a lot of respect for Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg. Um, they been very committed to a lot of great social causes, Mm -hmm. but they're selling themselves short by not harnessing this incredible passion that their employees have. And Mm -hmm. so when I heard questions from the employees at Facebook, it was like, I'm just going to be here for a couple of years until I can go start my own thing mm-hmm. um, because they were looking to get involved elsewhere because they weren't finding that support internally. Mm-hmm. Shift to Google where mm-hmm. I spoke that same week where, um, you know, the .org work has been integrated into the company from very early on and there is a commitment to giving their engineers and their employees time to work on social cause work. Mm-hmm. Um, the questions were very different um, and the opportunities to give back were so different. So, for example, when the fires happened in Northern California, Google employees came to the table and said, you know, we realize that it's really hard for people to get information about where these fires are. We Mm -hmm. think we can use our mapping tools to make that Mm -hmm. information available. And they did. And it Mm -hmm. was critical to support Mm -hmm. those regions. And so, that's the kind of change that companies can make for good mm-hmm. if they allow their employees the opportunity to give back as a part of their job. Mm-hmm. Does every
1: company have to have these though? I mean, it seems like a de rigueur thing that companies have them now. I know, I know, uh, Airbnb has one. They, they all seem to have launched those kind of things.
2: They don't have to, but mm-hmm. if they're going to want to survive in um, today's hiring economy, I think mm-hmm. it's it's going to be necessary. The next generation mm-hmm. um, is... Only, Gen Z. Oh, right. Gen Z is even yeah. more committed. Like 60% of, mm-hmm. of uh, teens say that they want their work to have an impact in the world. Mm-hmm. So again, it's also, it's employees and it's consumers. Consumers are also demanding uh, products from companies that are values-based. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really exciting time for, for philanthropy and to be involved in social So I,
1: I'm going to go to the, the nonprofits themselves in a second, but I wanted to stick with companies for a minute. I just interviewed um, Rose Marcario from Patagonia, for example. That's a heavy values-based company, it, even to the detriment of their own business, which seems to have gotten better the more committed they are to values, that certain values they have around, whether it's suing the federal government over different things over over parklands and things like that, or being very strident against the government, against Trump particularly, or whatever, they're or saying don't buy our stuff, recycle it, and things like that. Um, it seems to have worked rather well for them.
2: Yeah, I think Patagonia is a great example of mm-hmm. a company that has been incredibly, not only impactful through the way that they're doing business, but mm-hmm. also um, have shown that it's, it can be good for business too. They've seen an incredible revival of their company.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, so talk a little little bit about nonprofits themselves. When you're talking about, so, you know, social startup success, well, how have nonprofits changed? Because when I was in Silicon Valley a couple of years ago, many years ago, I remember going to something, it was right near Kleiner Perkins, and they were helping nonprofits become more technical and do better. And it was sort of a hopeless cause from because most of these nonprofits were stuck in some age that just doesn't exist anymore. Talk about things like the the way nonprofits have moved.
2: Nonprofits are struggling. So my research showed that this wall that we hit at Spark Mm -hmm. um, getting past $500,000 in Mm -hmm. revenue Mm -hmm. um, is a real thing. That Mm -hmm. two-thirds of nonprofits in the United States are $500,000 in revenue and below. Mm -hmm. And they are on this treadmill to constantly fundraise uh, for payroll the next month when they should be focused on their impact. I mean, imagine if we expected that of CEOs, right? (laughs) Like... We're going to make you spend—nonprofits seven nonprofits who responded to my survey said that they spent 75% of their time on fundraising. Mm-hmm. Companies would never get anything done. Right. And so we're basically expecting nonprofits to solve some of the hardest issues of our time, like mm-hmm. climate change and increasing inequality, mm-hmm. with one hand tied behind their back. Mm-hmm. And so my book, Social Startup Success, is all about trying to figure out, well, what are the strategies that nonprofits are using to get ahead? Like mm-hmm. testing and innovation, measuring impact fundraising more creatively, developing Mm -hmm. better ways of telling the story so that we can teach the next generation of nonprofits and the last generation of nonprofits how to be more effective. Mm -hmm. These strategies are teachable, and the problem is that we're not teaching them.
1: Okay. We're here talking with Kathleen Kelly Janis. She's the author of Social Startup Success. When we get back, I want to hear more about the tips that you use to create better
0: nonprofits. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey, it's Tom Warren, Senior Editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining
2: moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, Its Xbox business is going through transformational changes and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It will be your inside guide to all
0: those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday.
2: Go subscribe now at theverge.com
1: We're here with Kathleen Kelly Janis. She's the author of Social Startup Success. She's also a lecturer at Stanford University. Talk a little bit about your the the second part of your book is how they scale. You're talking to them and nonprofits launch, scale, and make a difference. You're using tech terms Mm -hmm. to do that. Talk a little bit about what nonprofits have to do.
2: Well, In my research, I found that um, it wasn't just charisma or a great idea that allowed a nonprofit to get ahead Mm -hmm. or not. Um, I went out and I surveyed hundreds of nonprofit leaders. I sat down with 100 uh, social entrepreneurs, with their staff, and asked them what the key was to their success. And it turns out that it's these five strategies that I talk about in the book, testing and innovation, measuring impact, collective leadership, fundraising, experimentation, and storytelling that Mm -hmm. allow organizations to lay the foundation for success.
1: So so go through the first one.
2: So testing and innovation. Mm -hmm, Which you
1: don't think of when you think of startups, really.
2: No. And yet that is the essence of Mm -hmm. philanthropy and nonprofits, to test small ideas so that Mm -hmm. we can use government to scale them for good. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem is that a lot of nonprofits get stuck on their individual solution and don't really take the time to investigate uh, whether they are solving the problem in the most effective way. So, the organizations that continue to be innovative as they grow um, are the ones that are able to ensure that they're having the most impact.
1: Right. So, what else? So So, testing like what? So, let's... Give me an example.
2: Um, so, an example would be Beth Schmidt, who mm-hmm. founded Wishbone. Uh, which When she was... It's a crowdfunding platform for low-income kids to get involved in extracurricular activities. And mm-hmm. so, when she was teaching in a low-income school in Los Angeles, she realized that her kids didn't have these opportunities to follow mm-hmm. their passions. She didn't go out and just start a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. She took the time to really identify what is the problem and how can I help with my solution. And so, mm-hmm. she assigned a paper asking them to write about their passions, and Mm -hmm. she photocopied that paper, sent it out to her friends and family, and said, would you give these kids money to follow their passions over the summer? And she got back thousands of dollars in the Mm mail. So, she really figured out how to tweak the engine before she began to run it. So Mm -hmm. doing things like figuring out how to get better scholarship money so that the cost would be lower, how to engage the kids in the fundraising themselves so that they Mm -hmm. could get that skill. And this is really drawing on a lot of the um, lean startup principles that we see in the Silicon Valley, the Mm -hmm. minimum viable product, figuring Mm -hmm. out how to test, measure, build. Um, And by drawing on some of these Silicon Valley practices, she was able to scale this organization to be a multi-million dollar organization that has served thousands of students across the country.
1: All right. So, testing and innovation
2: before. Mm-hmm. Next one. Measuring impact mm-hmm. is really critical. and this Which is, they don't do. No. I mean, this is something that really um, defines the next generation of nonprofits, yeah. this real rigor towards data. And I thought when I first learned this, that, well, that makes sense. These are the ones that are able to go out and talk to donors and mm-hmm. say, here's what impact we're having, and then they get funded. But it's not that at all. That They want to know that they are having the most impact that they can possibly have. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the problem is it's really hard to do that. 75% mm-hmm. of nonprofits say they collect data. Only 6% of them feel like mm-hmm. they know how to use it well. Right. Right. So we need to do a better job of supporting nonprofits to be more rigorous with their data, to know how to use that data that they're collecting mm-hmm. so that they can figure out how to do So
1: give me better. an example someone who's done that.
2: Cool. One organization that has done this well is Braven, an organization that helps college students who are from low income backgrounds mm-hmm. learn soft skills like networking and uh, resume building. When they had their first cohort of freshmen, Mm -hmm. they needed to know uh, whether they were having an impact early on. They couldn't wait four years to see if these students were graduating. So they tested proxies, like were those kids going to class as a proxy Mm -hmm. for whether they would ultimately graduate? Um, They asked their mentors if they would recommend them for jobs as a proxy for whether they would ultimately get a job. And by using this data to show that they were on track towards graduating their students at faster rates and getting them Mm Um, jobs at faster rates. They were then ultimately able to tweak their program so that they could be as effective as possible mm-hmm. and grow the program by getting the confidence of the donors that they needed to get to that next level.
1: Okay, and is it an anathema towards data, or is just not an ability, or not thinking of it properly? I think because all tech companies use their data. For, I mean, that's how everybody.
2: Differentiates themselves. I think the challenge is that nonprofit leaders go into this work because they care about the causes, mm-hmm. not because they're data scientists. And right. I think, um, you know, as someone personally who's a little bit of a data phobe, I can mm-hmm. relate to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think what nonprofits have to realize is that it doesn't have to be this big complicated thing. You can just figure out the two or three things that matter, like Braven did, right. um, and go after them rigorously. And also leverage the help of mm-hmm tech companies and data mm-hmm. scientists who do know what they're doing. Right, this is right, something that right. nonprofits have also been doing well. Yeah, they have recently. Mm-hmm. All right, what else? So also fundraising experimentation. This is a really important piece of it, and particularly developing ways of generating earned income. This is, again, another signature component sure. of the new nonprofit. It's mm-hmm. not just about So philanthropy. the old way was? Checkbook Just, charity, yeah, yeah. you know, take donations and give services, and then right. come back in a year and get your donation right. <laughs> renewed. Right. Um, that's a not. That's not. Yeah, <laughs> big gala. That's not very sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so, organizations like Hot Bread Kitchen in New York, which are using bread recipes from low-income women to help both train them to go into jobs in the food industry and then sell the bread to sustain the organization itself are finding ways to bring in earned income. Hot Bread Kitchen has a cafe. They do wholesale to Whole Foods and JetBlue. Mm -hmm. um, And they have an incubator for small businesses from the food industry. Mm -hmm. This is really exciting that these organizations are able to uh, survive beyond just philanthropic dollars.
1: Because fundraising is, besides the hand To mouth aspect of checkbook, which you're talking about doing it every year. This is a way to diversify your business, presumably which is a business, right?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I think what we have to be careful about is recognizing that not all causes are going to be amenable to right. earned income. You know, right. there's not a huge it's not business. A t-shirt business, yeah, <laughs> a lot of t-shirt. Yeah. Um, you know, racial justice issues, mm-hmm. human rights, you know, people aren't going to be paying for their human rights if they can't afford the bus to get to the courthouse in the first right. place. Right. Um, so philanthropy is not dead, but mm-hmm. where organizations can bring in earned income, it can be very useful.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, what else?
2: The other strategy that these organizations use is collective leadership. So they're flipping this, the, the traditional hierarchy of the CEO being on top right. um, and, and putting the their staff up front. Uh, in the book, I talk about Jim Nordstrom, who d- did this famously at mm-hmm. Nordstrom, the Nordstrom way. He um, talked about how customers should be first and the people who are closest to those customers, the salespeople on the floor, are the people who have the most control over the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so nonprofit leaders also realize that they cannot do it all themselves. And although we are in this world where we revere our leaders, like we equate Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg, we equate Mm -hmm. microfinance with uh, with Muhammad Yunus, Mm -hmm. that actually the best nonprofits Tap into the talents of their entire staff mm-hmm. to uh, leverage their talents and to right. keep them engaged.
1: How do you get a company to a, a nonprofit to do that? Because usually they like their charismatic founder. Well, Sometimes it in, turns out to be bad. Oh, like every fourth one.
2: I think the problem is usually we like the charismatic founder. And so, right. whether it's donors or media, mm-hmm. you know, we all want to hear from the founder because it makes a great story. Mm-hmm. And so, the best organizations figure out how to use we language, not I language, how mm-hmm. to make everybody a part of the social mm-hmm. cause and the movement, not just. Um, the, the give me a
1: good example of that too. So
2: Charles Best from Donors Choose, yeah. mm-hmm. which is He's great. An, yes, an incredible crowdfunding Explain platform. crowdfunding
1: for, for teachers. Teachers
2: yeah. so p- teachers can put their projects right. uh, up on the site and and fundraise to get them funded. Charles Best um, always brings it back to the teachers. He mm-hmm. always brings it back to the staff and the leaders. And he's he understands his role as the face and the, the uh, mm-hmm. voice of the organization, but he never misses an opportunity to give credit to others. And mm-hmm. that is the beauty of collaborative leadership.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And the last one storytelling. Storytelling. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So I think we all have this tendency to think that, you know, someone who gives a great TED Talk, a great political speech, mm-hmm. gets up there and they're just such a natural. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I went out and talked with these leaders, Mm -hmm. it's not natural at all. It comes from a lot of practice. And they realized that you cannot build a movement if you can't tell a good story. So, for example, Nadine Burke Harris, who founded the Center for Youth Wellness, Mm -hmm. had the opportunity to give a TED Talk about ACEs. This was the talk of her life because Mm -hmm. she realized she could shift the conversation if she could make this go viral. And so she talks about how at the end of six months preparing for this speech, her husband literally could could have given the speech for her because okay. she had given it right. uh, so many times across the dining room table so, that is a level of commitment that we see mm-hmm. in storytelling. And it's not just uh, for founders. It's also for staff or your board members who can be incredible champions for your cause. Everybody needs the tools to be a brand ambassador for an organization. Mm-hmm. And um, the onus is on the nonprofit organizations to put those tools. Have they
1: used uh, social media tools and other things to do that? I mean, you were talking about TED Talk, which not many people get to do. What are some other techniques that people have?
2: So I tested for social media in my original survey Mm -hmm. because I was really curious if there would be a correlation between the organizations that were emphasizing uh, a social media play and organizations that weren't. And there wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think social media is a place that can have... Or technology tools. Sh- oh, of course, technology tools. I mean, we heard from Dave and Charlotte mm-hmm. Wilner, the mm-hmm. p- the power of yes. Facebook to right. um, allow... This is a couple you can explain. Yeah, the couple um, who wanted to raise $1,500 on Facebook they did for raises Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to help bring families back together who were being separated at the border and, you know, within one week raised $20 million. I mean, that is the power of technology and social media to help social causes. And that is allowing philanthropy to take shapes and forms that we've never seen before. That's very exciting. It is not the only way Mm -hmm. to uh, have a cause go viral. Mm -hmm. The Center for Youth Wellness, for example, uses um, Google Analytics to see how they've changed the conversation by seeing how many times people are Googling ACEs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Nadine Bercaris was talking about how Oprah had on 60 Minutes this talk about ACEs, and she didn't feature Nadine. Right, <laughs> we right. were all like, wait a second, you yeah. should have been on Oprah. Yeah. And she said, no, 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 no. That's impact. When other people are using your story and mm-hmm. not attributing it to you, you have changed the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's that egolessness um, that is makes makes organizations and leaders so powerful.
1: Have organizations embraced this stuff, or, or we're going to talk about that next? But where where philanthropy is going? But how hard is it to get an organization off, like a nonprofit organization off? Because they do represent to me, besides healthcare, the slowest moving change agents around?
2: It's really hard. And it goes back to the fact that donors are not investing in nonprofits to give them the tools they need to make a difference. So 80% Mm -hmm. of nonprofits in this uh, of philanthropy in this country is restricted. Mm -hmm. So that means that that that, those donations have to go to certain programs. Let's say if it's a reading program, um, it can only go to the reading program. It can't go to what donors might call overhead expenses. Mm -hmm. We would never go into a restaurant and say, I'll pay for the food, but definitely not paying for the plate or the chef's time to prepare it or, Mm -hmm. you know, the electricity to keep the lights on. And yet we do that with nonprofits all Mm -hmm. the time. Somehow we feel entitled to restrict our donations to the part that feels good, Mm -hmm. like teaching a kid to read, but not All of the components that go into... Well, that's probably because many
1: have abused it. Like, there's been, like, you you report after report of them using all the money for their own
2: overhead. I think those reports got sensationalized. Mm -hmm. But all of these strategies that we talk about in Mm -hmm. Social Startup Success... That's overhead. That's mm-hmm. capacity building. That's investing in nonprofit leaders to do the work on the social causes that we care about. And so um, there's a great TED Talk by Dan Palota where he talks about the overhead myth and mm-hmm. how we do need to invest in overhead because that's all the R&D and the marketing that right. gets that's a companies off the ground. That's a really um, point. We need the same kind of investment in social causes. Okay. We're here with Kathleen Kelly Janis.
1: She's the author of Social Startup Success. We we get back, we're going to talk about where philanthropy is going. Um, in the future, and how it will be changed going forward, and where it is actually how people, how much giving people are doing. We're talking with Kathleen Kelly Janis. She's the author of Social Startup Success. She's also a lecturer at Stanford University. I want to finish up talking about where philanthropy is going. You know, a lot of, um, there's a lot of money here. For example, a lot of uh, different entrepreneurs have started their own philanthropies. Mark, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, obviously, Pierre Omidyar, um, and his wife Pam, obviously Bill Gates and his wife uh, also um, have started that. Melinda Gates, um, and they're doing some really astonishing things. Is that the way philanthropy is going to go in the future? What's happened? What's changed? Because that's where much of the money is in philanthropy. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like some of the most exciting ones are out of tech right now.
2: It's a very exciting time in Mm -hmm. philanthropy. So about 2% of our country's GDP goes to philanthropy, about $340 billion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is a huge investment that big foundations Mm -hmm. like Omidyar Gates Mm -hmm. um, and others are making in social causes. And they're doing it in new ways. They're investing in this very kind of social innovation that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. new ideas that that are – being applied to social causes that Mm -hmm. are allowing for scale like we've never seen. Mm -hmm. And so that's all really exciting. What I think is challenging as new donors think about ways to make a difference, a couple of things. One is that we forget about the poverty in our own backyard. Mm-hmm. We are living in a valley of billionaires, and yet mm-hmm. one in six children goes in to school hungry yeah, in the San Francisco area every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, there's a great report the the Giving Code by Alexis McLeod. Sorry, Alexis. Uh, Cortez-Colwell and Heather McLeod Grant, which talks about this poverty paradox that we're seeing in the Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. and how a lot of the philanthropy that's happening is going to higher institutions. uh, And yeah, yeah. There's a, a story that they tell where this donor spent—was uh, making an incredible contribution, a $10 million gift to a nonprofit. He spent mm-hmm. a year trying to negotiate what the terms of the gift would be and finally ultimately gave the gift. He was at his Harvard reunion with a bunch of guys mm-hmm. and, you know, had planned to give a certain amount but saw what everybody else was giving. And, you know, by the end of the night, he he made a $25 million million dollar gift on the spot.
1: Just so to
2: Harvard <laughs> to Harvard right. where there's yeah, a lot of poor people. Cuz they
1: need
2: the money. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think that, that there is this scrutiny of nonprofits mm-hmm. um, that we don't see in higher education institutions mm-hmm. and other places where people contribute their money. And I think that people need to take it upon themselves to understand uh, how they can give back to people in our community who mm-hmm. are suffering as well. And I think they need to do that by ensuring that they are educating themselves and learning uh, from those who have gone before them. Mm-hmm. Sean Parker, a couple of years ago, came out with this piece in the Wall Street Journal talking about this how is he- This
1: the Napster founder and he was an early
2: Facebook investor. Yeah, how he wanted to hack philanthropy. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> um, you know, which is exciting. I'm all for- you Sean know Sean has a lot to say. thinking about new ways to approach philanthropy. but let's Let's not forget that there are people who have been on the ground Mm -hmm. with their sleeves rolled up trying to tackle these issues for decades, and what Mm -hmm. can we learn from them and improve on Mm -hmm. um, in order to really make an impact in these social causes that we care about. Yeah, I
1: forgot that hacking. They love to talk about stuff like that. They have to first declare it broken so they can fix it, right? (laughs) Yeah. Is that irritating?
2: (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, I'm in the education business, so I try and keep it positive. Oh, do you? (laughs) I
1: find
2: it deeply irritating.
1: But are there some hacks that, I mean, there are some hacks you're talking about, hacks here in your book,
2: correct? Absolutely. I mean, it's there there are antiquated
1: ways we've done philanthropy in the past.
2: Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of old school nonprofits out there that need to renovate. They need Mm -hmm. to they need to uh, clean house and think about doing new uh, uh, taking new approaches like measuring the impact of their work more rigorously so they can figure out what's working and what's not and get better at mm. what they do. But this isn't rocket science. Mm-hmm. The strategies that I talk about in mm. this book are not new. They're just what the best organizations are doing.
1: What do you imagine philanthropy is going in the future?
2: You know, I'm really hopeful about Mm -hmm. the next phase of giving. I really believe that we are living in a golden age of philanthropy where there are more ways to give back than ever before. I mean, we see this with ordinary citizens giving back um, like the – The Rice's fundraiser on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, We see this with people who are giving their time. They don't. People don't just want to write a check and be done. They want Mm -hmm. to roll up their sleeves and get involved in the nonprofits that they care about. This is what's happening in the Rice's um, fundraiser. People are saying, "Yeah, no, it's. I don't want to just write a check. What now? What can I do?" Mm -hmm. And so we need all hands on deck to Mm -hmm. solve these really pressing social problems that we're Mm -hmm. facing, like climate change like increasing wealth inequality. And so, I think the fact that more people want to get involved is really exciting and we need to educate the next generation Mm -hmm. so that when they do graduate from college, they are ready to hit the ground running and they don't have to waste their time learning these very basic skills like fundraising and measuring impact on the job.
1: Right. Absolutely. And if you had to pick out a philanthropy that's doing it in a really innovative way, what would you pick? Name it, give me two or three stories of that.
2: I'm a huge fan of Tipping Point. I okay. know that you've had Daniel, Daniel Lurie, Lurie uh-huh. the founder on the show. When I went out and I asked organizations, who is your favorite funder and why, a tipping point came up mo- most often because of the fact that they give multi-year grants, that mm-hmm. um, that nonprofits don't have to worry about whether they're going to get funded next mm-hmm. year. And it leads to a more honest conversation. I mean, this is a big problem in the sector. There's mm-hmm. no incentive to talk about failure when you have to get funded. Right. And yet anyone from the tech sector knows that failure is a critical part yeah, to, like to learning and right. getting better and doing right. doing better work. And so so, um, so it allows them more transparency and it allows Tipping Point to then come in and help the organizations figure out how to solve the challenges that Just they're for having. Just
1: people don't know, Tipping Point gives money to organizations. They're, they're a funder of
2: philanthropies. They are. Yeah. And they're supporting anti-poverty work in the yeah. Bay Area. Yeah, they have also doing that. Yeah, homelessness, anti-homelessness. Yeah, and so it's the multi-year grants. It's the capacity building. It's investing in all these strategies that I talk about in Social start- Startup Success, like mm-hmm. management training, like fundraising, uh, like like storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, they bring in a media coach, yeah, right. to help their nonprofits mm-hmm. because, you know, media coaching shouldn't be something that's just relegated to, to, right. to companies. I mean, right. this is something that yeah. nonprofits arguably need just, mm-hmm. just as much. And so by investing in the nonprofits that they support, I think that ultimately they're able to show better results. And I hope that Tipping Point will be a model that other philanthropies will learn from and, and individual donors as well. Mm-hmm. What else? I am a huge fan of organizations that are thinking about how to invest in not just organizations themselves, but in say um, initiatives like Chan Zuckerberg mm-hmm. uh, is doing incredible work with um, their hospital, um, or sorry, their preschool that Chan and Priscilla Chan has has led, and looking at adverse childhood experiences and how they can bring their talents um, from the foundation to bear in this preschool that is helping kids recover from adverse childhood experiences. I'm also a huge fan of the Emerson Collective. I think that Learning Child Jobs um, has done a fantastic job of not just investing in the causes that she cares about, but using her voice and realizing that her voice on on immigration issues is going to be equally as powerful as any money that she right. can give to nonprofit organizations. So you will see her in the halls of Congress advocating for immigration reform legislation. And that is a really important role that philanthropists, big and small, can— She also
1: does a lot of artistic and social media things that have—it's uh, a really interesting thing. They did a carne arenas, the the, the VR
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, experience.
1: they funded that to what it's like to be an immigrant, um, which I thought was very moving. Um,
2: Absolutely. They did
1: this art, this photography project that got very viral, um, where they put pictures of all the immigrants in front of like Mitch McConnell's office, like giant. Mm-hmm photographs of immigrants Amazing. just to see who they are and I thought that was everyone's was like oh it's a waste of time I'm like no it's not it's a visual representation so people can't look away
2: and that can be yeah.
1: sometimes the
2: most powerful way to change hearts and minds Jeff Skoll has done this through participant mm-hmm. media where he um, you know made waves with the inconvenient truth mm-hmm. uh, the, the film that he funded on climate change mm-hmm. and this and is an eBay founder yeah, and so thinking about film as a way to change the conversation can also be a really uh, important contribution mm-hmm. to social causes.
1: Absolutely. Lastly, are we gonna like when you think about what happened with the Facebook um, thing with races? Um, is that the way big funding is going to happen from now on? These moments of boom—it happened in Haiti. It happens, you know, on Twitter or wherever. Is that the way fundraising is going to go in the future? Where there'll be this these big, large. Explosions of fundraising or not?
2: I think it is going to be one big part of the way mm. that fundraising happens, and I mm. think that's really exciting. I think one thing we saw with... Like this
1: guy in Alexander Gillum in just political fundraising, he was using a single app that really got... It was really interesting. It was just... A-
2: Well, I think Obama and his presidential campaign really showed that, you know, a $5 contribution Mm -hmm. when brought together with, Mm -hmm. you know, millions of other $5 contributions can actually make a big difference. Mm -hmm. And that is an equalizing of philanthropy that we're seeing that is really exciting because it's it's giving ordinary citizens the feeling that they can give back. I remember being a young professional saddled Mm -hmm. with student loan debt and feeling like I would stretch myself to make... You know, a hundred dollar donation and mm-hmm. it would be a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, but now people can really see and touch and feel the impact mm-hmm. of their contributions um, through these large uh, donations. It also ways. feels
1: like a game. Like it feels like a, like, let's get the number. It's a, just interesting. I've noticed like a ton of them now. Well, I'll gamify philanthropy <laughs>
2: any day if it helps social causes. Let's go. <laughs> so again, the
1: this is uh, uh, to get to, to, for these philanthropies to start doing. This they have to start thinking more innovatively. That's essentially what you're saying.
2: Absolutely, they
1: have to think innovatively in how they're going to put their messaging out, how they're going to put their, how they're going to create their organization, how to invest in their organization. Essentially,
2: yeah, absolutely. But it also means that we need to be supporting nonprofits Mm -hmm. so that they can integrate some of this innovation into their work.
1: Great. Thank you so much. This is uh, Kathleen Kelly Janis. She's the author of Social Startup Success. We've been talking about philanthropies and where they're going. The book is available everywhere, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Everywhere. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Kara. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't like the interview, well, you're just a mean person or you just want to say hi, tweet at me. I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Now that you're done with this, go check out the latest episode of Recode Media. You can find that show wherever you found this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then.